Howard and Hayes will tell us a little more, more about his uh, ministry as he preaches today, but uh, he is probably a familiar face to some of you that have been, been around a while. He lives just up the road for another two weeks, and he's got a pastor's heart. He's been ministering for years at OCBC, Ottawa Chinese Bible Church just across the street, and uh, then it seems as though the Lord has called him into uh, missionary work in Ottawa, and he has been doing this for like Three years now, Dan, mm -hmm. or so? I, yeah. <laughs> he's been doing it for a while, and uh, he's certainly been making some connections for Ottawa churches and for people that want to preach the gospel to people and reach the law. So we are thankful to have you, Dan. Let's give him a warm welcome. <laughs> well, it's great to be with you guys again. It's been a while since I've been here. I don't know the last time. Matt, you need me back here more. Come on. We'll figure this out. But no, I, I actually am very thankful to be here. I am very thankful to your church family uh, supporting us and supporting our ministry and many individuals here uh, who support our ministry as well. You can throw up the first slide, I suppose, which is just that. Yeah, if you got one of those phone things to scan, <laughs> those, I uh, will tell you a little bit about more about our ministry with Connecting Streams or also that's our personal website, which is very easy to remember. It's just ottawamissionary.com. And that gives you a little bit of understanding of more of, of the work that we're doing here in the city. But thank you, particularly for those of you who are praying for us, particularly uh, over this last month. We, uh, you know, we live right across the street there in Hawthorne, and those big developments are going up where my house is. So we were told about a month ago that we would need to be departing by the end of August. But praise the Lord, we found a house a couple weeks ago, and uh, God just uh, provided a place I know the rental market is crazy, as you know, in this city, and uh, we found a place, uh, just a testimony of the Lord, it was really amazing. We found a place, they gave a number on their ad, and we looked at it, and we are like, oh, this is really nice, you know, and we were talking about, my wife is a Red Cross worker in Saskatchewan, so she was like on the video looking through, and we are like, oh, this might work. And then we talked to the guy, and my wife and I were kind of thinking this might be the place. We talked to the guy, and he said, oh, no, everything's included, utilities, internet, heat, hydro, water, uh, snow removal, everything, we're like... Our, my wife's jaw just dropped, and we are like, praise the Lord, and we are like, can you give us a few minutes? So uh, we're very happy, and actually, it's been interesting, because I've been praying for that part of the city. We did, I did some work with the gathering, with Connecting Streams. We do some church consultation. They were our first church to really kind of walk through a process with their elders over the course of a year, and one of the things we noted was, and there's a couple good churches in Alta Vista, but from Heron Road South until Greeley there are two evangelical churches east of the river. And so now there's three, because we have a little house church that's going to go down and, and meet there as well. And, uh, but church planning in that quadrant of the city, it's a very underreached quadrant of the city. It's the fastest growing part of the city as well. Uh, South Keys, Riverside South, those, air, those communities down there. Riverside South being probably the fastest or second fastest community growing in the city. And uh, it's growing so fast that they don't have community services. So one of the things we work through with the gathering over a course of a year, uh, they're very excited. Uh, through that process of discernment, of prayer walking, of doing a, doing a survey of their neighborhood and walking with their elders, they've uh, decided to pursue. They're going to be looking at uh, planting a food bank as a center of mission because they found, even though Riverside South they thought was a pretty affluent community, they found that actually the poverty, child poverty rates are 2% higher in that community than surrounding areas. And uh, 300 families a month go to use the South Keys Food Bank. And so they're gonna bring something and be a center of mission in 
uh, Riverside South. So those are some of the things that we're doing with Connecting Streams and uh, that I have the privilege to do. But uh, today I want to talk to you guys about something, kind of my magnum opus of, of kind of when, when we're talking about a social vision, God's works for God's glory. And I want you to use your imagination a little bit. Is it okay? Is it too early in the morning to use your imagination? Sometimes I like asking congregations to use their imagination. I never know what's going to happen. So I want, I want uh, you can put up the next slide. Imagine you're called into Mark uh, Sutcliffe. What's his name? <laughs> He's not here, is he? <laughs> Our new mayor's office. And imagine he brings you into his office and he says uh, your name. And he says, I want, you to, uh, I want you to lead a committee to try to unite our city around a social vision for the good of our city and its residents. I want, you're going to lead a committee of selected people, and you're going to come out, and you want to have a unified social vision for the good of our city, and then I want you to come up with a you know, step-by-step strategic plan uh, to implement that social vision. Okay, and you're like, okay, I, you know, I don't know why you asked me, but sure. You know? And you walk into the room, and this is what you, you see. This is your, your task force. You can go to the next slide. There you go. So, I mean, yeah, I like it. You go, oh, you know. And this would be the type of team the city would put together and say, come, come out with a unified social vision. Now, I want you to use your imagine here for a second, just 30 seconds of imagining how would this go. <laughs> I see a lot of shaking heads, right? This is not going to work. I mean, forget about coming out with, you know, steps of implementation. You likely are not going to come out with a unified social vision. And it's most likely that there will be shouting and hopefully no physical threats. But uh, the, the lunch break's going to come early, we'll put it that way. Um, as we look at this, it, it just seems like there's, there's just no way you could bring the diversity of people together. And this is actually the, the problem our city leaders are trying to do. <laughs> Try to bring a diverse group of people together for a unified social vision and implement practical steps. And as much of you, as your imagination is taking you into wild places of, man, this is never going to work, I want you to think about the people that followed Jesus. So think about the people that followed Jesus. And what's amazing to me, and I think this is one of the biggest miracles of Jesus' ministry, and I don't know what you think about that show, The Chosen or whatever, but I think it, one thing it did, did really well in the season that I watched is it shows the diversity of the people that were drawn to Jesus and how much they hated each other, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, you had, you had uh, just take a couple of them. You have, uh, well, John the Baptist, a hermit, right? They call him Creepy John in the series, and a creepy John's approach, and, and some people unite John, and I don't know if you, you do this or not, but some scholars unite him with a movement um, called the Essenes that basically said everything in the city is corrupt, the temple is corrupt, uh, the priesthood is corrupt, the Jewish leaders are corrupt, and they, they basically went out, I was there this summer with my son, and they basically went out into the middle, they, they would rather live in the middle of the desert than live with the people of the city. And they went and they formed their kind of, their, um, their, their, they, they came to a community of purity, is what they wanted. They didn't want anything impure. They had to wash themselves, ceremonially baptize themselves twice a day. Like we're doing a baptism later, right, to show the purity that Christ gives us. They would do that twice a day um, because they, just, they, they were the pure ones, the shining ones. 
and they, but they had to withdraw from, they, they knew they had to withdraw from the city to do that. And they basically were waiting, they, they were going into the wilderness, they're basically like waiting with their binoculars, when is Messiah going to come and nuke all those people? That's the hermit approach. Um, we have the, the zealot approach. The zealot approach, basically burn it all, and like this person saying, I don't need to wait for the Messiah to come to burn it all down, I'm going to burn it all down myself. Right? And, and through, well, first through political activism, then even through acts of violence and, and, and uh, what do you call that? Revolution. Um, tear it all down. Now think of the zealot and the hermit, and then think of what they would think of Matthew the tax collector and Levi, Levi the tax collector. Here's a person complicit in the system, profiting off of the system, profiting off of Rome. And I love, I love, I love just thinking about Simon Peter because I was thinking about, I know blue-collar guys. You know the blue-collar workers who are just like, just get government out of my problem. <laughs> I, I just don't want to think about the city. It's, they're not quite hermits, but they're just like, I just want to put my head down and do the work. Right? You think of Nicodemus, the teacher. Right? And, and I don't even know the word to describe Mary, Mary in, that, in, that, in that show. But, you know, Jesus was, was, was working with people coming out of the background of the streets as well. And you think about this diversity, and, and even these approaches that we have, we have these same approaches in the church, don't we? We argue about how much we should be hermits. We argue about how much we should be activists, zealots. We argue about how much we should, um, you know, just, just go along and submit to the authorities, be complicit in the system. We argue about whether or just we just put our head down and do our work and let the city take care of itself. Like, that's our approach as well. And what I'm saying is, I think one of the biggest miracles of Jesus is that Jesus got all these people in the room together and they didn't adjourn for lunch really quickly. Like Jesus got all these people in the room together and they followed him together for three years. And yeah, there probably was some times where there was some bickering and, and infighting. And, uh, but one of the, <laughs> I, I really do think that the... That, that it was that, I mean, one of the miracles of Jesus is that he drew all these kinds of people to himself. He drew all kind, these kinds of people to himself, and they came to Jesus, at least initially, because they saw in him an answer in seeking the transformation of the city. And they saw that he was the answer. That the answer to the city's troubles and the secret to the city's shalom, their peace, is not in a program or a political position or a protest, but it is, in fact, in a person, Jesus Christ, Messiah, Lord, Savior. They came to Jesus and they saw in him an answer to the problems of the city. And that is part of what he offered. He came to offer a kingdom. But he remember what he would teach. He would say, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not trying to build a political movement. I'm, I'm proclaiming a kingdom that first will come within you and among you and work on your heart first. He, he, he came and proclaimed a kingdom. But remember, the entrance to the kingdom was repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our hearts must be changed. The hearts of all these men and women following Jesus from their diverse background 
first Jesus needed to capture their hearts. And make no mistake, our only hope still today for the transformation of our city is Jesus Christ. Him crucified, him resurrected, him ascended, and him ruling and reigning from his throne. Jesus is our ultimate aim. Jesus is our ultimate motive. Jesus is our ultimate model. And bringing the nations to Jesus is our ultimate goal. And people say, well, look how, look how narrow and exclusive that is. But you look at anything in the Christian movement, that early Christian movement, and what, what strikes you is how inclusive it was. All these people from various diverse backgrounds, they all came to him. He offered something different. Hermits, tax collectors, zealots all found their place in his movement. Politicians, Pharisees, skeptics, and sinners of all walks of life found their place. The rich and the poor, the left and the right, the liberals and the conservatives, Jesus went to them all. He met them right where they're at, and he brought them to himself. That was a miracle. We know how polarized our society is. That is a miracle that all these place people found their place in Jesus. Amen. So, I mean, I could probably end the sermon there and do the altar call. Like, come to Jesus, right? Come to Jesus. But I'm actually going to not stop there. And I want to I do a quick, I, I, I'm taking a risk here. I want to do a quick, because here's the thing I believe. And, and I don't know if all of you guys will walk with me here. But this is, so I'm going I'm to go, this is my conviction I've come to after studying the scripture and trying to live it out. Because I actually believe that all these people didn't just come to Jesus. It wasn't just a miracle that they came to Jesus. It's that they left that encounter with Jesus, or, or I should say they launched from that encounter with Jesus into a unified social vision that you see poured through the rest of the New Testament. That's a miracle that they left with a unified social vision. And I want to I point you to some passages today that I, I think express some of the unified social vision that they come to. And what's amazing about this is you'll see the same social vision in James, you'll see it in Jude, you'll see it in Peter, and you'll see it in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Once you see it, you see it flowing through the entire New Testament. I, think, I feel like we've missed a little bit of that. And, and that's what I want to do. So, so what I'm doing is I'm going to take you through a whole bunch of passages today. Each one of these passages could be a, would be multiple sermons in and of itself, okay? So bear with me. I understand this is a topical message, and I understand we're going to fly pretty quickly, because what I want you to do is I want to dip your toes into it a little bit, okay? And then it's up for Matt and Kenny and the elders here to, to keep pushing you in deeper into the waters, okay? So the next part of my sermon, just, just be ready. Just, if you're taking notes, just write down the, 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 the passage, right? And then study it later. Okay, that's what we're going to do. So let's go very, very quickly. First passage we're going to look at is actually, first, uh, go to the next slide here. I forgot about this. So i got to read it up here. It's hard to read back there. So Rodney Stark has written a book called The Rise of uh, Christianity. It talks about the rise of, the, um, of, of Christianity in the first 300 years. And one of the things that's amazing about this, his book, is he talks about how that unified social vision is one of the things that, that accompanying with the Great Commission and the proclamation of the gospel, won the Roman Empire and the world for Christ. Okay? And he actually talks about how soup was a big part of it. I, just, I always think about that book and I say it's, he's, the, he's the one who talks about how, how the, the, the pagans were converted by soup. 
Because the idea was that it was the Christians' care and concern for the poor, but particularly when there was a giant epidemic that swept through, and it was the Christians, all the doctors were fleeing. All the doctors fled their posts, and the Christians ran in with soup. And the Christians took care of one another, and they took care of the non-Christians. They took care of the sick with soup. And I just laughed because there's a paragraph in the book that talks about how soup was one of the reasons for the expansion of the early church. But he writes this letter. It's one of my favorite letters in all history. It's from Emperor Julian, who's called Julian the Apostate. And he's writing a letter to the pagan high priest of Galatia in AD 362. And I just love this testimony of the church where he says, Observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of their dead, the stranger's dead, and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause. Each of these things, I think, ought to really be practiced by us. So he's writing to the pagan priest saying, we should follow that lead of the Christians. This is why they're gaining so much favor. It's not sufficient for you alone to practice them, but so must all the priests in Galatia without exception. I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, the impious Galileans, meaning the Christians, observed this and they devoted themselves to benevolence. These impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. And everyone can see that their people lack aid from us. It's one of the most amazing testimonies of the Christian church by an unbeliever that I can find in antiquity. So what was the core of the one-minded approach? Well, let's go to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, I, I call 1 Thessalonians, if you study the book out, it's, it's basically an instruction manual for discipleship of new Christians. It's because the Apostle Paul was stripped out. Usually the Apostle Paul would spend four months in a city planting a church. Four months! So that's short cycle church planning. He'd spend four months, that was his regular custom, was to spend four months in the city evangelizing, proclaiming the gospel, gathering the believers together into a church, uh, giving them a foundational instruction of what it means to live and please God, and then raising up and appointing elders and then trusting them into the care of the Holy Spirit. Four months. But in, 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 First Thess in, in Thessalonica, he was stripped away after only about two months, probably. So he didn't get to finish the task of establishing the church, and it, it pulled on his heart. So as he went to Berea and then to Athens, he was worried, are they going to continue to stand in Thessalonica? And um, he was worried for them because of the intense persecution that drove them away. Is this church still going to stand? And so having only been there for six, eight weeks, you see in the book to the Thessalonians... The thanks, Siri. <laughs> you see in that book, if you study it, you see... All the things, Paul says again and again, he says, remember, remember the things I taught you when I was with you. And then he realized, as you read that book, he taught them a lot. In six weeks, he laid down a very strong foundation. And one of the things he laid down was, for them, was how they were to work on, with their hands. And for, for example, uh, even in chapter 2, which I, I don't have up on the screen, even in chapter 2, he said, like a father working among you, I worked hard with my hands so as not to be a burden on any of you, and we set ourselves an example for you to follow. A lot in the Thessalonian correspondences are about how they were to continue. I don't know if they were a lazy church or what was going on there, but he, 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 again and again, he instructs them. In this way, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 first. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you receive from us how do you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. Again, he had laid down that foundation in a few short weeks. 
Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly. So I have some of them highlighted. To live quietly, to mind your own affairs. Funny, some of our modern translations say, mind your own business. It's kind of funny. (laughs) It seems a little bit more harsh, doesn't it? Live quietly, mind your own business, right? Um, To work with your hands, as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. So what we have here is that they're instructed to live quietly and mind our own affairs, so they're not to be zealots, right? So, so check that one out. They're not to be zealots, so Simon, tone it down, <laughs> right? We just want to live quietly and work with your hands, but, but do this before outsiders. So there's a sense in which they're to do this publicly, They're to do this not in private, not in secret, not in setting their own commune up outside of the city, but to do this within the context of the community in which they're living. And notice the progression here. Oh, sorry. And and then he says this. He says, we are to work with our hands so that we are dependent upon no one. So that we're not receiving the aid from the city. We're we're, we're, we're dependent upon no one. We're we're industrious in and of ourselves. Let's go on because he he speaks more to that as he goes on into 2 Thessalonians uh, 3, 6. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now Now listen how strongly he urges this. Now we command you, brothers. Paul speaks like this only a few times. We command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. For even when we were with you, we'd give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. This was a church discipline matter. I really believe because of the social context of the early church when they said, if someone doesn't work, he doesn't eat. I really believe he's speaking about the love feast that would accompany many of the gatherings of the early church. And that this is an ex-tabling. What's another way to say ex-tabling? Ex-communication. It's an ex-tabling. If a person's not working, if a person's walking in idleness, if they're not providing for their self and their family, and they don't have a good reason to do not. He's not talking about about people who are unable to work for various health or physical reasons. He's talking about people who are able to work and are choosing not to. And he said, this is such a thing that he commands. And then he says, this is a church discipline matter. So stay away to idleness. If you're able to work, you work. And again, here is this this idea of a quiet life. Not that life of activism, but that, that quiet life of working hard with our own hands, taking care of the community, not being a burden on others, but out of your industry, blessing others. We use that word benefactor, which means the church as a benefactor community, that we are out of our industry able to bless and benefit others rather than taking from and receiving from others. As a church, we're going to talk about meeting cases of need in a second. Let's go to the next one. 1 Timothy. Now remember in 1 Timothy, Timothy's instructing his co-worker and pro, uh, Paul's instructing his co-worker and protege, Timothy, about how to establish the body of Christ, how to build them up. 
And again, that idea of quiet life comes up. It's amazing. We don't think of that idea of quiet life. But it comes up again here. 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, I urge then that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for all kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger, without anger, or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with that which is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So his point here is not about, what, is not about us parsing in our culture what clothes women should or should not wear. His point here is the positive. What we should be concerned with adorning ourselves with is good works. With men, the point is here, just instead of arguing, instead of getting angry about what you see in society, that anger should drive you where? To your knees. Pray before ranting. (laughs) All right, I got to (laughs) repent. I really do. How many got to repent about that one? Pray before ranting. Oh, no, I rant before praying often, right? But that's the, this is the idea that, that when we see the dark, and think, about the, think about the culture they're living in. They're living in a culture where the emperor rules supreme. They're living in a culture that would throw babies just in the river. To, they would do post-birth abortion by throwing babies in the river. They're living in a culture in which pedestry and other practices that would have been appalling to the gospel were, were, were piercing their soul. And yet, what are we called to do? Pray before ranting. <laughs> In fact, pray all the more. Pray, be- right? Go to chapter, oh, sorry. So we're to pray for the government, but specifically, we're, to, we're specifically to pray that we are to live quiet lives. And I do think that's what we're looking for today. We just want, in a sense, to be left alone, to worship our God, right? To raise our kids. Let's pray. Let's drive this. Let's let this drive us to pray. And that our men might be known by the outside world, not by our political stances as being quarrelsome or angry, but prayerful. And that our women would adorn themselves with good works. You keep on going, but speaking about that women adorning themselves with good works, look at the qualifications he gives. And we could look at the qualifications for elders as well, but let's look at the qualifications for the widow. We don't spend a lot of time at that widow's list in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But it's very interesting if you understand how the biblical writers wrote, how they would bookend stuff. So look at the qualifications for widows in, in 1 Timothy 5, 9 to 10. And see how he bookends your life. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, she's shown hospitality, she's washed the feet of saints, she's cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good works. So he's speaking about for this godly woman who's, who's going to be now brought on and honored in the, ch- in the church as being part of this widow's list. He's just saying, listen, the, the whole theme and song of her life is devoting herself to good works. 
I, I want you to, to just pause here and kind of do a parenthesis. Do, do you see right now, do you already see the New Testament authors, and this is, we've been looking at Paul, but we're going to switch to Peter in a moment. Paul does not shy away from promoting and speaking about good works. Now, we have to contrast that to Romans, Galatians, right, where he's speaking doctrinally that we're not saved by, by works of righteousness, right? But, but we've taken what he is saying about how we don't earn our salvation by performing any acts of righteousness, and, and, and particularly not in accordance with any religious or ceremonial law. We've taken what Paul has said about good works there, and, and sometimes we've read the New Testament in such a way we're not seeing how Paul's promoting for the Christian to dedicate themselves to the lifestyle and cause of good works. My, my, one of my professors in Bible college has said, we've basically taken... Um, Martin Luther's commentary on Romans and Galatians, and we've read the whole rest of the New Testament through that lens, where we think that every time Paul's speaking about good works in the New Testament, we're, we, in, our, in our head, we're immediately thinking of, oh, meritorious, meritorious, how do you say that? Meritorious, thank you, meritorious works, you know, that somehow we're trying to do to get us into heaven. That's not at all what Paul's speaking about here. He's speaking about you, Christian, now that you're saved, here's, here's the vision Devote yourself to this lifestyle. Let's look over at Peter here. Or actually, we'll do one more in Romans, then we'll hop over to Peter. So Romans 13. Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror. Now listen to this part, because a lot of us got really excited about those first couple of verses. Keep reading. What he says here, rulers are not a terror to do to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to who taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Woo! Given the social context of the Caesar in the Roman Empire, he was absolute authority. Be subject to authorities, not zealots or resisting. But yet, here's the, here's the point. A lot of us, we look at like the negative thing. Let's look at the positive vision. The positive vision is do such good works. Act as good citizens. You'll receive his approval so we can live quietly. The, the idea here is, is that we, we do, through our good works, we are known in the city. We are known even to the authorities above. Pay taxes, meaning we're industrious in supporting the city as we give honor and respect. Now, was this only Paul's idea? Let's go to Peter. Look, at, this is where it's really interesting because you got Peter and Paul, two very different people. Now, what does Peter have to say about this? He says almost the exact same things, almost using the exact same words. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. Of visitation. 
Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God honor the emperor. So if you're like, I don't like what Paul has to say about this, guess what? The other apostles are backing him up. Peter's using the exact same language. And note again, your life is lived among the non-Christians, the Gentiles, in a public way, not resisting or not, not retreating from the city as a hermit, but we're to pursue good works that would bring glory to God. And our quiet submission to governing institutions is accompanied by good works in the community that will put to rest any slanderous accusations that those who hate us may make against us. We're going to look, actually, let's read the next one. I'm going to make a big point here. So the next one, 1 Peter 3.15. Big apologetics verse, but look at how it, how it starts. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. Let your, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that it was in you. Yet do so in gentleness and respect. How many times have you heard that preached in the context of apologetics, but they haven't mentioned the good works that we're, be, that we're being to participate in that gives rise to the asking for the reason for the hope that you have. Having a good conscience, he goes on to say, so that when you're slander, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Two things about good works from these two verses in Peter. They act as a shield and they act as a platform. Right? So they see our good works and that gives us a platform to proclaim our hope in Christ. And they act as a shield so that when the slanderers come against us, the community themselves rise up and say, that's not like the Christians that I know. That then when they want to paint us as bigots, right? when they want to paint us as people who are the fringe of society, our neighbors, non-Christian neighbors rise up and they say, I, I don't know that from Calvary Baptist Church. I know loving people. I know people that came when I had a house fire. I know people who gave me shoes for my baby when I needed them. That's not like the Christians I know. What I see in the media is not like the Christians I know. What I hear in politics is not like the Christians I know. See how they work as a shield? And the work is a platform. Jesus himself, let your good works shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Shield and platform. Think about the shield and platform. Now, Titus. Titus. Titus would be the other book I would turn you to. Like, we all go to James. I'm not even mentioning James today. We all think about James and James's social vision. I'm not even going to mention James. Because you guys already know, most of you guys who already know the Bible, you're already thinking, James, James, James. When is he going to get to James? I'm not even going to get to James. The book of Titus is Paul's book of James. If you want to learn about good works, go to Titus. And you'll see that there's no, we've, since the Reformation, we've tried to pit Titus, or we've tried to pit Paul against James. 
Haven't you heard all those debates? Paul and James, Paul and James. They come together and shake hands in Titus. Okay? That's what Titus is. So Titus chapter 2, major passage. Titus 2. As for you, teach with what accords and sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Women are to teach what is good. And so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And now, Timothy yourself, as a pastor leader in the church, Timothy yourself, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Kenny, Matt, in all respects, show yourself to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything, and I believe this last speaks to all of us, we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now I'll let Paul, Matt unpack all the rest of it, but I just want to show you this idea of how much Paul is speaking to the church, every relationship in the church, and saying, people of God, you're to be known for your good works. Just like the most beautiful bracelet, necklace, I don't know, accessory you could think of, and you want to show it off to your friends, he's like, do that, but do it with good works. Because the aroma of your gathering is then going to be pleasing to God and to man. Next, two more in Titus, then we're going to wrap it up. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Amen. <laughs> the, let's read that again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession, listen to this, who are zealous for good works. Grace transforms us to be zealous to seek the good of others. Zealous of good works. You're, yet conversion. So, so get this. Conversion. I want to see the city come to Christ. That's my ultimate motive. But it's not my ulterior motive. I'm going to do good to this city even if it doesn't bring people to Christ. Why? Because I'm zealous for what God, the good that God has shown me, I now want to show others. My ultimate motive is to see people come to the Lord. I'm an evangelist. Yes. But it's not my arterial motive. I'm not baiting and switching people. I'm not giving up on my good works if I don't see people come to faith. I do what Paul says in Galatians. says, keep on working for that harvest. And at the proper time, if we don't give up, we're going to see it. So therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And especially to those who belong to the family of faith. And the final passage, as I wrap up, Titus 3. This is, the, this is, this is what we read in our call to worship. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. This, this brings everything together, doesn't it? If you only got one passage, study this one. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authority, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. 
to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For, for, and I love this part, this testimony. We ourselves are once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's our world. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Now, listen, Paul James, let's bring it together. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here's the trustworthy saying. I want you to insist on these things, Matt. Kenny, insist on these things. So that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. They're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, warn them once and then twice, then have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. And look at verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent needs and not be unfruitful. Sorry. Yeah, and not be unfruitful. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. This is why I gave you the big overview today. Because I do believe, as Western evangelicals, we need to learn how to devote ourselves to good works. We need to be taught. The word in this passage is disciple. And particularly to be meeting, to be, for the ability of meeting practical needs in our community. I don't know if you've got a love fund, benevolence fund here. I don't know how you exercise it. I don't know how you're known in Old Ottawa East for, for just sometimes just, just giving and helping people who are hurting here in this city. But, but let, I'm hoping as a church this inspires a conversation to say, how do we disciple our people toward good works? Not that they trust in them for their righteousness. Paul's so clear. He saved us not by our works of righteousness, but he saved us to be a people zealous for good works. So, four big ideas I leave you with that you can work out in community here. First, first takeaway, benefactor mindset. A benefactor mindset. We are to be thinking benefactor, which means to be a blessing to others, not to be taking from others. Generate that mindset here. To give and, and not receive. We are to gauge in good occupations so that we can provide for our own family's needs so as not to be a burden to others, but instead so that we can bless others out of our abundance. And that's obviously to everyone who's able. Right? Sometimes as Christians, we have kind of a poverty mindset that's more holy. Like, that's the opposite of this. It's like, no. If, you, if God has gifted you with the ability to create wealth, do so. But don't do so for yourself. Do so for others in his kingdom. Second, quiet work. We're to avoid political activism that stirs up dissension in the community, yet be fully engaged in public life through our pursuit of good works. Before speaking and before shouting and before ranting, prayer and service. Prayer and service. Practical care. Collectively and individually, we're to meet pressing needs in the community in which we live. This is valuable for its own sake. But our good works may also provide for us a platform for the gospel and a shield from persecution. And finally, intentional discipleship. We're disciple younger Christians in developing this lifestyle of good works. I gave you a lot today. 
I understand. This was a magnum opus. <laughs> That's like a lot here. Take one thing and then learn. So for me, uh, I was a pastor for 12 years. I, I recognize this is stuff that does not come naturally to me in how I've been trained and how I've been discipled. That's one of the things I stepped out into the city to do mission work in the city. I'm working, Connecting Streams, we work with vulnerable communities in the city, and it's been such a learning process. And I, like, I'm learning every day. I hope that this spurs on some conversation and thought. If it has, I want to invite you very practically to come and join us next Saturday. Um, you can put up the next slide. So I am, I'm putting on with Canadian Bible Society in Love, Ottawa. Connecting Streams is hosting a Connect Ottawa conference. What we're trying to do is bringing together all the Christian ministries in the city who are doing this work. So we have, over, we have, we have 30 uh, organizations represented um, coming together, and we have others that are just coming that haven't replied to my emails, <laughs> but I know they're coming. Uh, but people who are serving the downtown core, people who are serving people uh, experiencing addictions, trauma, grief, seniors and long-term care residences, newcomers to Canada, bringing together the like-minded people of the city for a morning of basically connection and prayer. There's a lot of open-ended time just to connect, network, and learn from one another. And there's going to be set-apart time for prayer. And one of the things is we've all seen, and, and this is why, and the last thing I'd just say here is the church, the local church is so important in this. Because one of my hearts in putting on this conference was we've all seen mission drift, right? We've seen Christian organizations that started in their service for the poor, initially on fire and zealous for the gospel, but over the decades or maybe over the years and over the decades, we've seen them drift from that mission. It's so important that these organizations remain vitally connected to the local church. I really do believe. So that, that, that this, this is a grand strategy of mission and church that Christ has put together in the Great Commission. See, that's the delivery mechanism, isn't it? To transform the world. How do we get this out into every corner of the globe? The delivery method is the Great Commission. The delivery method is the Great Commission. This is Christ. And, and I want to just, the last thing I'd say here is I don't know where you walk with Christ this morning. I don't know where your vision has been for him. And what I'd love to see is I hope that something today resonated with you that you might seek, know the Lord, begin asking those questions, go up to any of the people here and say, what is the reason for the hope that you have in Christ? And I know that they will do so, give you that answer in gentleness and respect. You can come to Jesus today, though. Today could be your day to come to Jesus. I loved, I heard a story this week of one of my friends got to lead someone to Jesus and the guy just prayed out, Lord, I just need you come into my heart and change me. It's that simple. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who are in this room today that they know Jesus, that wherever they've come from today, <laughs> that they leave here today knowing Jesus, that they call out to you, Lord, I need you. I need my heart transformed. I pray you do your work here. And Lord, then I do pray for Calvary. I pray that this church would be so known for their good works in this community. Their light would shine before men and they would give glory to the Father in heaven. We give you thanks and praise in your name. Amen.